today to read through more of Anti-Oedipus, the Losing Atari's epic on capitalism and schizophrenia. Uh, admins, are you all there? <clears throat> Reporting for duty, sir. Yep. Indeed. Yep. Yes. Excellent. And Will, how about you? I am here. Excellent. Uh, so, uh, just a few bits of housekeeping uh, before we go a little bit further. Uh, we are in the process of slowly getting uh, the server running at a lot more functional a level. Uh, it's in the last two weeks when we first started this, we did not expect to cross 100 people. Now we're breaking 600. So we need more volunteers. We need more help. We need anyone who wants to be a part of this in any way, shape or form. Uh, let us know, write any of the admins. We will happily take a moment and chat, let you know kind of what's required. And it's not much time. It's not even much effort. Uh, I put very little effort into this, as I'm sure you've guessed by now. Uh, at the same time, uh, we are looking forward to getting a lot more shows out, getting a lot more uh, community moments out, and a lot more time spent actually talking through a lot of these definitions. Uh, trying to figure out how to format all that stuff is where we're having a few sticking points. So be watching for that and uh, be ready for a lot more things that are happening. So with that, I'm going to say thank you very much uh, for joining us. And I'm going to uh, once again toss it to our Wonderful host, Craig. How are you doing this week, Craig? Doing fantastic. You have a lovely, lovely weekend as well. Uh, as best as I can. I'm having. I'm living my best life under the quarantine. Excellent, excellent. So, for the format of this talk, we're going to kind of stick with what we've been doing. Uh, chapter section four is uh, exceptionally dense and a little longer than the others. We're very ready for this to take more than one chat for us to get through. So, uh, we'll spend the first hour, maybe a little bit longer, going through the text itself. You know, talking through everything as we go in the discussion chat above. Do not hesitate to write questions uh, at me directly. Message me if you want. I'm happy to ask any question you may feel is too dumb to ask yourself, but there is no such thing. This is a very, very dense, difficult section of the text with a lot of things uh, that I don't, I don't even slightly grasp. Uh, but type them in discussion chat. We will get through all of your questions and all of your comments as best as we can. And with that, I'm going to let Craig start off. Uh, I'm going to be going live, so feel free to read along with me in my... If I can figure out where this is, come on. There we go. Uh, you can go ahead and follow along. I'll have the PDF up if you do not have it, so you'll know right where we're at at any given time. Uh, with that, thank you guys very much. And Craig, I leave it to you. Okay, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This part of the text is exciting. And if it's not exciting to you, it should be. That's all I'm going to say to start. Well, that's not true. I actually have a little bit of a preface <clears throat> for this text. Um, some sort of questions to frame the discussion going forward, things to think about. Um, one of the reasons that I love this part of the text, well, actually two of the reasons uh, are, one, I used it in my master's thesis, which I'll probably make available to you guys at some point. Um, also, I love this part of the text because it, it really is an intersection between philosophy psychology and politics. And I mean, this could be read by any <clears throat> any number of folks in any of those disciplines, and somebody could derive something important from it. So here's just a few questions to start. Um, in spite of the repressive power of psychoanalysis, which we're presupposing for this part of the discussion, um, what has it accomplished for art, science, politics, and philosophy? This is something that Deleuze and Gattari are going to point out uh, in the text. 
Also, for you Marxists out there, this should be an exciting part of the text because um, of this question. How does Deleuze and Guattari's project in Anti-Oedipus here mirror that of Marx's project uh, when it comes to uh, him drawing influence, uh, influence from the philosopher Ludwig Feuerbach? Also, uh, we're going to go deep into the weeds. We may not get there today. Um, I know it will come up on the radar, but here's another question to think about. How are the distinctions between desiring production and social production better articulated in this chapter? And how does articulating those distinctions form the basis of Deleuze and Guattari's political program? <clears throat> and uh, I'll just give you the sort of I will call it the tagline or um, what to look out for as we read ahead. For Deleuze and Guattari, the fundamental problem of political philosophy is how and why anyone can endure repression and exploitation and not fight back. So we're going to get a little glimpse of that today. And we're just about to start the, the first section, uh, Materialist Psychiatry. But I, I just thought it was important to uh, include another question just for this paragraph and maybe the next two or three paragraphs. Uh, this word delirium. What is a delirium? Um, here's a sort of question that I framed around that question. I find it interesting and telling that they don't use the words consciousness or phenomenology to name the sort of awareness or mentality that is produced in the process of production. They use this word delirium. Um, and I think it has something to do with they, they do not want to reify a notion of universal consciousness at here or, or anywhere for that matter. But with that said, let's just break right into the text. I'll stop after the first paragraph and I'll open it up uh, for anyone to make comments based on the questions or what we have read. So to begin, a materialist psychiatry, the famous hypothesis put forward by the psychiatrist G. de Clarembeau seems well-founded. Delirium, which is by nature global and systematic, is a secondary phenomenon, a consequence of partial and local automatistic phenomena. Delirium is in fact characteristic of the recording that has made the process of the production of the desiring machines. And though there are syntheses and disorders, affections, that are, that are peculiar to this recording process, as we see in paranoia and even in the form forms of schizophrenia, it does not constitute an autonomous sphere, for it depends on the functioning and the breakdowns of desiring machines. Nonetheless, Clarembeau used the term mental automatism to designate the athematic phenomenon, echolalia, the uttering of odd sounds, or of sudden irrational outbursts, which he attributed to the mechanical effects of infections or intoxications. Moreover, he explained a large part of delirium in turn as an effect of automatism. As for the rest of it, the personal part in his view, it was of the nature of a reaction and had to do with character, the manifestations of which might well precede the automatism, as in the paranoiac character, for instance. Hence, Clarembeau regarded automatism as merely a neurological mechanism in the most general sense of the word rather than a process of economic production involving desiring machines. As for history, he was content merely to mention its innate or acquired nature. Clarembeau is the Feuerbach of psychiatry, in the sense in which Marx remarks, whenever Feuerbach looks at things as materialist, there is no history in his works. And whenever he takes into account, he no, is, uh, he is no, longer, a, he no longer is a materialist. 
A truly materialist psychiatry can be defined, on the contrary, by the twofold task it sets itself, introducing desire into the mechanism and introducing production into desire. And so um, I want us to consider some of the questions that I asked or maybe just elicit some reactions at this point. I have to go into my settings and turn off the the sound notifications. So maybe uh, someone would like to pick up there. Well, I, I have my question that uh, I, I, I started with before we were even in this when I was making jokes about how dense this text is. The comment, Clarimble is the Feuerbach of psychiatry, does read to me like a Dennis Miller line, and I don't recognize either of those concepts or have really enough understanding of what either of those thinkers have as opinions. Is there anyone who can give me just uh, explain like I'm five I'm dumb as hell. What is Clarenbaut? How does Feuerbach relate to each other in psychiatry? Well, one thing I'd like to mention that I started reading uh, Nietzsche and the Vicious Circle this morning uh, by uh, Klaus Waski, and um, I noticed that I noticed that he uses the term delirium as well in there, and um, you know he's mentioned in the text by Deleuze. And so I'm, I'm starting to think that his book um, might be something that we would read along with uh, this, t- you know, this this text, uh, you know, in an I- if it was an ideal world. Now I, I don't know who uh, Clarenbaugh is, um, but uh, the 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 point that I would make is this difference between the delirium and the automastic phenomena, where which which also Klauswowski talks about as well. That uh, you know that that something is just happening at like a, like a, automatically in the person um, that they're experiencing, and then and that. Uh, it seems like they're seeing delirium as something that's thrown off as a side effect. So can can I respond to that? Sure. Well, the last time we were talking about emergent phenomenon, or that's the term that you were using uh, mm-hmm. when we were talking about the, the notion of I and how I feel and I think come into the, the picture of desiring production. Um, I just made a list of four little bullet points here, and uh, later on I can share my... Uh, my notes with everybody who's here. Um, The first thing that I bullet pointed was delirium, and I underlined this, does not constitute an autonomous sphere of awareness. So I think what they're trying to accomplish here is to say that the concept of delirium is not analytic with the concept, well, hold on. Delirium does not equal the concept of consciousness as we conventionally understand it, or maybe understand it in the Cartesian sense. I think, therefore, I am. I think what they're saying here is this notion of I feel or I think comes about as a a sort of after effect of the production that exists alongside uh, desiring production uh, that appears as consciousness, records as consciousness, but is not fundamentally reified as consciousness as we normally understand it. I would just like to add uh, what this way formulating. I'm sorry. What the rest to Clarembeau. Uh, I don't know much about his concepts, about much about his developments, but I remember reading that Khan actually credits him for his entry into psychoanalysis. So I think there there must be a important connection here to be made between Lacan, Clarembeau, and their 
<clears throat> they're working in psychiatry and psychoanalysis later. Well, so Lacan, I know, uh, credits Clarembeau. That's, yeah. I know very little about literally what he believes, but Lacan credits Clarembeau for actually being into the world of psychoanalysis and psychiatry. So mm -hmm. it's like, yeah. it's a he's a deeply important figure in some way that I don't understand. <laughs> well, you know, here's, here's the, the, the reason that he, his he's pointed out here. Um, he's compared to Feuerbach. Why? Because, all right, we have this history of philosophy, and over here we have the history of psychoanalysis, and we have all these thinkers. And then comes along a few thinkers. In this chapter, it's going to be Clarembeau and Reich. And they get close to something, but they don't end up going all the way with it. And this was uh, Marx's critique of Feuerbach. Now, Feuerbach was loved and respected in the 19th century by so many philosophers all across Europe. Um, and he's most famous for the notion uh, that theology is anthropology. So basically, what does that mean? Um, he the notion of any sort of transcendent human uh, essence <clears throat> um, is something that we can strictly attribute uh, its its metaphysical aspects, its ethical uh, ethical to the sphere of human relations. So morality, for example, this sort of idealized form of morality uh, that comes through the Ju Judeo-Christian tradition is actually a um, a derivative of the way that our culture formed. It gives it cohesion. It gives uh, gives us a sense of like all the virtues of excellence that come from Aristotle and things like that. None of those things for Feuerbach are given to us on high by any god. These are things that have basically sprouted up in virtue of us creating culture. Um, but what Marx criticized Feuerbach for was he stopped short with his materialist critique. As we know, Mark, Marx links um, uh, the, the emergence of culture, the emergence of ideology, the emergence of theory as, a, as being based on economic production. And that's where Feuerbach didn't go. He's going to look at Clarembeau. He's going to look at um, Reich and say, look, you guys are edging on the notion of a political economy. Why don't you take it all the way? And so what, what Clarembeau lays out for us here is like, okay, there's this thing called delirium. It's not an auto, uh, autonomous sphere of awareness. Um, it functions in virtue of the way that it breaks down. We're talking about echolalia, utterances of sounds, right? Um, it has a sort of spontaneous quality to it. Uh, it sort of breaks out of the system of signs and signifiers that we, that we normally understand to be... Um, normal, I guess, for lack of a better word. And this notion of delirium is athematic. It has no inherent or fundamental sense inscribed into its functioning. It just kind of moves along nomadically across a system of signs and meanings that we have. And Deleuze and Guattari, at some level, are like, perfect. Now let's link that to desiring production, to economic production. Yeah, there, there's a theory um, of consciousness, consciousness uh, called the broadcast theory, and basically what it says is that um, the uh, when when so one of the things they've learned is that by doing functional MRIs is that when you look at a particular object, different parts of the brain are um, uh, processing the different parts of that object. And what the broadcast theory says is that when those different parts of the brain are finished doing their processing, they 
they published it to everybody, you mm. know, all the parts of the brain. And that's what consciousness is, that writing. Mm -hmm. And so and so I think that that this is kind of like a uh, uh, a model by which we could view what's happening here in the sense that all of the different functional parts of the brain that are dealing with different parts of the object, that's the automatic phenomena. And that and that but what we appear as what appears as consciousness is what is broadcast to the rest of the brain. That's the delirium. Right. And I, I think the important point that they're they're trying to make uh, with regard to that notice in Clarenbo's uh, psychology here is that, look, what you're pointing out is is what we're trying to say by the functioning of desiring machines. There's something very close to what Clarenbo's doing that we want to do in our project, but he's not going as far. This reminds us of Marx and his relationship to Feuerbach. I think Great. another, so, way, of, uh, another yeah. way of talking about Feuerbach is the fact that that he thought that that you know what God was was just a projection, a man projecting himself as God. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Afshin, you had something. Yeah, I have a question on on the salience of because I'm I'm the way I'm understanding this now that I'm coming from chain perspective in his racial. His work were always on the side of irrationalism. Mm -hmm. You can't, you can't, you can't excise out that irrationalism out of humanity because it's always going to be there. Okay. So, in this sense, what, I, I'm trying to get the materialistic perspective on this idea because I feel like the delirium is that notion where it isn't done by any rational sense, but it's there is still a sort of character to it that we could understand. Right, and that character has this materialistic uh, aspect to it, but I'm not, I'm not understanding that materialistic idea that Marx is trying to grasp at. If that makes sense, um, I think uh, one way to think about it is <clears throat> the just a, a notion of an ego that we all have an ego, and this this ego has certain characteristics or attributes. And there are certain psychological movements that we can call abnormal, aberrant, what have you, that if these are expressed um, too far outside what's considered to be normal, well, we need to reel that back in. We need to get you back to a normal functioning ego. And what this presupposes is that there is any such thing, any, any some such reified structure as an ego that's transhistorical, that's universal, right? And what Deleuze and Gattari are saying is, no, it's this, this sort of automatistic functioning of the delirium. This is what's primary in, in the production of desire. This is what desire looks like. Now, what we have is we do have metastable egos. We do have metastable identities. We do have metastable cultures. And what they do is they position uh, thought consciousness within particular coordinates but you're right at the basis of it there is something that we could call a sort of an irrational force or drive that that's constantly unsettling this and that's exactly what Deleuze and Guattari are connecting to here with Claire and Bo. they're like hey man you almost got it and if you were to notice that this <clears throat> is the sort of uh 
either fundamental or like primary nature of political economy, you would have totally gotten it. Oh, okay. Nice. I, I think this and also though relates to, to what Ken was talking about earlier about uh, Deleuze's and Guattari's reliance here on Kolosowski's reading of Nietzsche with the phantasm, particularly in uh, Nietzsche and the Vicious Circle, this inarticulable like force, this drive that is, again, in constant conflict with other drives. Yeah, I'd like to like maybe break down some of the colloquial readings of delirium here, because it's like, it's interesting. It's not quite a unconscious state, but it's not a quite fully conscious and con- controlled state either, uh, as I read it. It's a sort of state where you're getting these uh, traces of experience and control, but also kind of lost and dizzy and, uh, yeah, not in full control. Uh, so somebody in the chat maybe has a question that's connected to this. So they say, so or they ask, so the delirium is not another state of reality, or loss, as they say, schizophrenia is not either. Uh, I don't know what this refers to, not a, not another state of reality, but I think that delirium, for Deleuze, especially in their conception of uh, the unconscious and their schizoanalysis, is present, is a state of reality. Uh, I wouldn't say it's not a state of reality. I don't know. Does anybody have a specific answer to this? Because in some of the interviews I've seen from Deleuze, they say that they, again, oppose this reductionist reading of delirium and say that uh, we actually, somebody's getting feedback, I think, but uh, that we actually delir about everything. And this is the French, uh, this is the French uh, term or word. Well, it's, that, that, that question came from Park Bench and... Uh, yeah. It clarified, they clarified a little bit. Um, schizophrenia is not the loss of reality, but too much of it, essentially, is how Deleuze kind of looks at things. Can we see delirium the same way in that context? I think the... Um, I don't want to be too reductive. I think the, the things that we that we want to return to, at least if we're looking at Clarembeau's uh, rendering of what delirium means, so just simply put, it's not an autonomous sphere. So it's not like each, if we're talking about human consciousness in the sort of conventional sense, each one of us that was put here may have an understanding of themselves and the universe in which they live in virtue of their surroundings. But we might make the mistake that any sort of understanding of ourselves, any sort of feelings or thoughts that we have are somehow outside of that that sphere. And... and we might misunderstand it as us being separate, not only separate from that sphere, but coming from a a sort of universal or um, immutable, uh, that our consciousness is somehow universal. Or simply put, we are socially constructed and our consciousness, our thoughts, our feelings are all dependent upon various milieus in which we exist, the body right? Um, our environment, our culture, all those sorts of things make up this, this notion of, of something that we could call consciousness. Here, we're calling it delirium. Uh, oh, I think Deleuze and, and, and Gattari, they're sticking to this word delirium to avoid the trappings uh, that come with using the word consciousness. That's my interpretation. 
uh, I, I just like to mention that in the last section, uh, they talked about the, the, the relationship between delirium and um, hallucination. And they said the, right. the hallucination is the I see, I hear, and the delirium is I think. Right. And so, mm. you know, like Nietzsche said, um, the, uh, uh, you know, it's not I think, but it thinks. In other words, the it that's thinking, that's the automism. Mm -hmm. And think the, the specific thoughts that we have, you know, um, you know, we attribute to those to our ego, to ourselves. But, um, you know, what Nietzsche was recognizing was that they, they, they just come to us as a given, something given. Right. I, I think that, I, and I think you hit upon what's, what's essential for our discussion. Um, I don't think any sense of thought here is taken as a given. Um, all of it is contingent upon the, the, it, the sort of intersection of, or the, the desiring machines. They're connecting and breaking down, and in virtue of that connecting and breaking down, producing this other thing alongside of it, which is the celibate machine, right? That that consumes or conjoins those um, those connections and breakdowns, and that's what sees and hears and feels and thinks. I. So I've got an idea here. I'm not sure if this is a good reading or not, but it's seeming to me that like, um, oh, I had it for a second there. Hold on. Um, basically, the delirium as the I think is sort of the, the issue isn't that uh, there's some state of autonomism, uh, not autonomism, uh, automatism. Um, and the problem is not that that is occurring. The problem is the fact that that, that the so-called subject is thinking about that when they shouldn't be thinking about that. Does that sound accurate to uh, everybody? Well, I mean, I just want to mention that the, these uh, automatums, I mean, that's just another word for machine. Right. And so... Um, uh, but I guess and, to me, it's, it's emphasizing the sort of non-self-conscious aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm of the interpretation that this is this is beyond what we can determine. I can't say the word. The word is like we don't have a causal connection as, in a subjective sense. We have a sense of it comes to us in a sort of apparatus that is beyond what we are as a subject. And I think that delirium is what we can say as I feel, I think. That goes beyond the sensuous perception of what we are. So, okay. So to go back to that sentence I had so much trouble with, Clarenball is the Feuerbach of psychiatry. <laughs> um, I, it's actually a really important sentence. I think I'm starting to divine the meaning of, please correct me. Uh, the comment here that they use with Marx is whenever Feuerbach looks at things as a materialist, there is no history. And whenever he takes history into account, he's no longer a materialist. It's a little bit of a Rodney Dangerfield almost joke, right. like, like Groucho Marx almost, uh, where it's kind of mocking the concept of how Feuerbach, who spent a lot of time doing a lot of work in psychiatry, uh, but he never actually did so in the context of the greater history of things or the materialist perspective, which is, of course, Marx's big thing. And Clarenbault, 
as they discussed in the beginning of this, uh, Clarenbolt talks about these uh, automatonisms, the, these athematic phenomena where a person who's a schizophrenic or is reacting to the world has involuntary responses with words, with uh, actions, movements, whatever it may be, uh, regarded those things as almost completely broken from, you know, separated, almost in a vacuum, when in reality, they're very connected to the desire production that people are going through. So that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think and true. so that that's kind of the, the comment they're making is that actually, no, there's no such thing as a psychiatry that isn't materialist. Everything that happens is ultimately materialist. And that's their kind of appeal in this section. Yeah. So, I mean, here's an, uh, maybe uh, it's a very quick way to think about it, but um we can look at the details later. If you were to ask Feuerbach, <clears throat> where does justice come from? Doesn't the concept of justice come from God? No, it comes from humanity. It's been developed over centuries. It's a sort of anthropological development. Oh, interesting. Um, what does the concept of justice emerge out of? Um, humanity. Uh, okay. And then Marx is like, uh, well, you know, all of these things, all the virtues, whether it be justice, love, charity, all of those things are derivatives of the the shift in mode of economic production over time. And so Marx is going to champion the notion, look, I went all the way with this Feuerbach, he, he was onto it, but but he didn't complete the project. Clarembeau's doing the same thing. He notices this, this, this idea of like some such subjectivity, this, this sort of automaticity or uh, this automatism, right? And he's like, this is what we were talking about in, 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 the, uh, in the last section here. But Clarembeau, what he failed to do was he needs to introduce the notion of desire into that mechanism and see that, that, that notion of automatism as a function of desiring production, economic production, you know, in short, political economy. I, I think I think one way to think about this might be, um, you know, when, when okay, so we're looking at a schizophrenia, which is an extreme of human behavior, and so in that extreme of human behavior, maybe the patient sometimes is just making noises, sometimes they're talking, and so you know the. I think what they're saying here is that you know when they're when they're making noises they're considered animals when they when they're when they're speaking they're considered um, you know human beings and so but but if you look at it from the this autumn uh, you know viewpoint of automism then you're saying no there's something that's going on you know underneath th those different representations that are. Uh, articulate or, or unarticulate. The same thing is going on, whether they're articulate or they're unarticulate. All right. I think uh, we should probably get to another paragraph. <laughs> I love it. Uh, 30 minutes on just one paragraph. I love it. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, read this next section as we move on. Um, there is no very great difference between false materialism and typical forms of idealism. The theory of schizophrenia is formulated in terms of three concepts that constitute its trinary schema. Dissociation, Krapelin, autism, 
that word, and space-time, or being in the world, Ben Swanger. The first of these is an explanatory concept that supposedly locates the specific dysfunction or primary deficiency. The second is an ideational concept indicating the specific nature of the effect of the disorder, the delirium itself or the complete withdrawal from the outside world. The detachment from reality accompanied by a relative or an absolute predominance of the schizophrenic's inner life. The third concept is a descriptive one, discovering or rediscovering the delirious person in his own specific world. What is common to these three concepts is the fact that they all relate the problem of schizophrenia to the ego through the intermediary of the body image, the final avatar of the soul, a vague conjoining of the requirements of spiritualism and positivism. Hey, I just want to check my mic right now. Do, am I breaking up? You're, you're having a little bit of issues. I'm still breaking up? Okay. No, you're doing better now. Oh, yeah. I am? Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll stay on it for a while um, and just play with it. Um, I, go ahead. Ken. Well, I'd just like to mention uh, who uh, Binswanger is. Thank you. Uh, the uh, so Heidegger, um, you know, he 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 uh, produced his philosophy in uh, uh, being in time, and uh, Binswanger uh, tried to take that philosophy and uh, make a existential psychoanalysis out. And but Heidegger didn't like that. And so toward the end of his career, Heidegger um, uh, teamed up with another uh, psychologist, a psychiatrist, and tried to formulate something that was truer to the being and uh, being in time <laughs> view. And so that's that. So so when he says here that it's the uh, uh, relate the problem of schizophrenia to the no the uh, predominance of the schizophrenic's inner life. You know that the, they're being specific to the world. That's a reference to Dasein. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think it was it was clear that uh, that it was moving in in the direction of ontology here. Um, my question is then linking it back to specifically the way that Deleuze and Guattari uh, frame this relationship between delirium and, and this kind of automatic cognitive machine mm -hmm. i think and and please comment on my audio as we go i'm still kind of fixing it here um i think the important line is at the end of this uh paragraph which is um what is common to these three concepts is the fact that they all relate to the problem uh, they relate the problem of schizophrenia to the ego through the intermediary of the body image so just that right there um, why is it the case that we have to reduce the functioning of desire, um, the, the sort of tangents it takes to any notion of the ego that we have? And in fact, it seems to be the case, and this is what Bulls and Gattari are just going to argue all the way through. They're, they're like, look, desire functions more like the schizophrenic than it does like any sort of reductive ego thing. Oh, hold on. You're kind of breaking up again. I'm breaking up again. Okay. Yeah, your sensitivity just may be a little too high in the settings of Discord. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll, I'm trying to send you a quick thing to, to fix it. Hold up. Okay. How is this now? Is it better? Uh, it's. I, we, we won't know until you talk at length. Um, yeah. And actually for that, it would probably be worth uh, diving into the next paragraph because I think they, these things 
ultimately kind of help explain a little bit of the direction of this because again we're talking about their, this is a bit of their response in a terms of a materialist psychiatry what their response is to an ego or the classic conception of it so yeah. Craig why don't you read the next chapter and we see how your mic's doing okay um, <clears throat> the ego however is like daddy mommy the schizo has long since ceased to believe in it. He is somewhere else, beyond or behind or below these problems, rather than immersed in them. And wherever he is, there are problems, insurmountable sufferings, unbearable needs. But why try to bring him back to what he has escaped from? Why set him back down amid problems that are no longer problems to him? Why mock his truth by believing that we have paid its due by merely figuratively taking our hats off to it. There are those who will maintain that the schizo is incapable of uttering the word I, and that we must restore his ability to pronounce this hallowed word, all of which the schizo sums up by saying, they're fucking me over again. I won't say anymore. I'll never utter the, uh, I'll never utter the word again. It's just too damn stupid. Every time I hear it, I'll use the third person instead, if I happen to remember to, if it amuses them, and it won't make one bit of difference. And if he does chance to utter the word again, that won't make any difference either. He is far too removed from these problems, too far past them. So maybe we should read the next section, the next paragraph. Uh, and your, your, mic's, your mic's working really great, Craig. And Andrew, why don't you go ahead and jump into the next section? Yeah, sure. Even Freud never went beyond this narrow and limited conception of the ego. And what prevented him from doing so was his own interpreted formula, the Oedipal neurotic one. Daddy, mommy, me. We may well ponder the possibility that the analytic imperialism of the Oedipus complex led Freud to, dis to rediscover and to lend all the weight of his authority to the unfortunate misapplication of the concept of aut autism to schizophrenia, for we must not delude ourselves. ourselves. Freud doesn't like the schizophrenics. He doesn't like their resistance to being Oedipalized and tends to treat them more or less as animals. They mistake words for things, he says. They're apathetic, narcissistic, cut off from reality, incapable of achieving transference. They resemble philosophers and undesirable resemblance. I feel like we could just keep reading because it's just, it's. I, uh, I just want to say I love those paragraphs and, um, what was it, in the. The first one, this idea of the schizophrenic uh, playing this game about the word I, it kind of reminds me of um, this kind of inversion of the whole thing with like how like fascists play games with words and they don't mean them. The schizophrenic is kind of inverting that and being like, I don't even mean anything I say about myself. Fuck you. I think a big but, question is what's like at stake in being reduced to an ego? Um, and I think that problem is going that they're using the schizo as a way to sort of problematize the notion of being reduced to anything, to be situated in any set of political coordinates. Because let's face it, that's that's what we're getting down to here in the end. What is all your suffering about? Well, it's about your relationship with the daddy mommy, isn't it? And then as soon as you say, yeah, that's it. Um Whenever I read this part of Deleuze and Guattari, it reminds me of the movie A Christmas Story, where he goes up and he goes and he sits on Santa's lap and he's like, what would you like? And he forgets what he wants. And Santa convinces him 
like, oh, I guess you want a football, right? And it's like, yeah, that's what I want. I do want a football. <laughs> He's like, all right, now get out of here and I'm about to shoot him down the slide. And just as he remembers what it was he really wanted, he gets kicked back down the slide. This is what's happening <laughs> with the schizo. I, I also that's think really it's, nice. it's important uh, to, to focus on, on the words uh, beyond or behind or below these problems uh, rather mm-hmm. than immersed in them. Because it's not necessarily that like, in Freud's conception, the schizophrenic has like like lacks ego, right? It's that it's that the schizophrenic has abandoned it, which mm. I think is is fascinating. And this is very important to highlight this uh, part of the sentence when Freud says, "incapable of achieving transference," and the the uh, actual role of transference that it plays in the psychoanalytic like relation between the analyst and the analysand. It's really giving to our discussion of how they mold these uh, neurotics and how they mold these people into their uh, respective daddy, mommy, you know, molds generally. It's this transference actually that that, it, that does this. This right, exactly, and I exactly, and I yeah, exactly, and I feel like there's a salience in Deleuze pointing that out that there's again that agonistic relationship between the schizo and that mommy, daddy, me scenario. Where again, he's pointing out, he's pointing out that Freud doesn't even like schizophrenics because they they are resisting him from being edified, and mm-hmm. that I feel is is salient enough to be picked up on because of the fact that I think there's Deleuze is touching upon something that the schizophrenic has that is still not I, I that I'm that I'm that's what's driving my fascination forward is what is that force non-transferring. Attitude. So you're, you're kind of, cutting out. I mean, I didn't hear the last sentence at all. Yeah, go ahead and oh, repeat. So, that. so the, the the sentence that says uh, he doesn't like that resistance to being edibleized, right? And I feel that is touching upon the sense of that agonistic relationship between schizo and what it is that he's resisting, right? So I feel like there's something there that the schizo has. That is that is Deleuze that that's that Deleuze is trying to touch upon that leads to the delirium that, that I feel is 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 being conceptualized here. Okay, so maybe we can go on. I can continue reading the next one. Please do. Yeah. So the question as to how to deal analytically with the relationship between drives and symptoms, between the symptom, the the symbol and what is symbolized has arisen again and again. Is this relationship to be considered causal, or is it a relationship of comprehension, a mode of expression? The question, however, has been posed too theoretically. The fact is, from the moment that we are placed within the framework of Oedipus, from the moment that we are measured in terms of Oedipus, the cards are stacked against us, and the only real relationship, that of production, has been done away with. The great discovery of psychoanalysis was the of the production of desire, of the productions of the unconscious. But once Oedipus entered the picture, this discovery was soon buried beneath a new brand of idealism. A classical theater was submitted for the unconscious as a factory. Representation was substituted substituted, sorry, substituted for the units of production of the unconscious. And an unconscious that was capable of nothing but expressing itself in myth, tragedy, dreams, was substituted for the productive 
I love this paragraph. I just yeah. wanted to say, I really yeah. love this paragraph. As and I'll let someone else analyze it, but I love it. Remarkably clear, I would say, as opposed to what we've read as of now. It's, it's they're finally making, I think, the point. Uh, what is the book Anti-Oedipus about? Oh, we're starting to actually, <laughs> we're really starting to get there. And, and uh, I kind of like the, the, the dichotomy the, between uh, idealism and materialism here. And what they said uh, in the beginning of some of the uh, sections before, there's no difference. There's, there's a very great difference between false materialism and typical forms of idealism. And this is the psychoanalysis is actually this false materialism they're talking about, even though it starts with correctly identifying desire and production, right? Even though they called it differently, the second the Oedipus as an idealistic force and an idealistic structure of sorts jumps in and all just breaks apart. I think one of the the sort of underlying questions here too that we'll be confronted with later, and and if any of us ever look at their work on Kafka, for example, um, and if you read Gattari's solo work in particular, um, I highly recommend you read uh, Gattari's dream interpretations. Um, but the the question anyway is. Um, how do we interpret the vagaries of desire? How do we interpret our own suffering? And I, I would caution a reader to against the notion that Deleuze and Gattari are against any notion of interpretation. That's not the case at all. But they are against this notion of interpretation that leads to representation with a capital R, whereby we interpret everything through idealistic symbols, myths, tragedies, dreams, stories that have been elevated to the status of being divine or uh, untouchably divine in a way that stands outside of the sphere of imminent production of desire. So not, it, just this, uh, not just this interpretation that ends up being representation, but they're actually, I feel, much more against an interpretation that has a goal that is finite in some sense, because this is what psychoanalysis or psychiatry in practice usually uh, tries to achieve, right? Some sort of, uh, as we said earlier in some earlier discussions, some sort of reconciliation, right? Or working towards it, which the uh, Gattari are not trying to go towards here. This uh, interpretation, if we agree that they're talking about some kind of interpretation, does not have yeah, I don't think they have a problem with interpretation. I think that pro I think I don't know. It seems to me that this capital R representation is kind of this fascist uh, thought. It, I think it's when, that they're trying to attack. It's it's when we start to see. It's when they start to unfold to the reader the totalizing power of Oedipus. Yeah, I think that's right. And not only to find Oedipus in the mommy-daddy triangle, but to see how this dynamic is operative in all kinds of group formations, all kinds of narratives, um, even those which are maybe on the face of it seemingly revolutionary, right? Mm -hmm. How is it, for example, that a socialist movement could indeed become fascist. And I know this is one of the contentious arguments. Oh, we want to make a distinction between uh, socialism and fascism. The, de the definition of fascism that Deleuze and Gattari are going to work with, well, it could indict some socialist and revolutionary movements. And they're going to say that there are reactionary counter tendencies that inhabit these movements. 
I think uh, this so point gets to uh, something you brought up earlier, which is that this section starts to really draw the distinction between social production and mm -hmm. desiring production. And I wanted to draw attention to the reference in this paragraph to the classical theater. And I think this is something that we haven't really talked about much, but the theater as production, you know, the, the theatrical production as another reading of the word production throughout their text, I think is something to pay attention to. But doesn't theatrical production in itself carry uh, representation of something? Uh, yeah, that word theater um, appears the, the, the oeuvre. Right, I, th I see it as a sort of the, the social production, representing yeah. the social production. Right. So maybe, Craig, you can continue and then we read the next two paragraphs conjointly with uh, Spinoza appears in the middle and then sure. we discuss um, that. Yeah. Uh, did you say that we should split this paragraph up maybe? I mean, of course, it is a long one, right? Oh, here, I'll, I'll just stop at one point in this paragraph. Yeah, sure. um, so anyway, hold on. I don't know if you hear my dog's squeaky toy, but that's going to stop right now. <laughs> that's okay. I'll, 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 I'll give this a read. You can mute yourself and handle the dog. Okay. Thank um, you. Go for it. Uh, feel free to interrupt me, Craig, and anyone else when you think sure. I should stop, because uh, this is a very dense paragraph. Yeah. Uh, every time that the problem of schizophrenia is explained in terms of the ego... All we can do is sample a supposed essence or a presumed specific nature of the schizo, regardless of whether we do so with love and pity or disgustedly spit out the mouthful we have tasted. We have sampled him once as a dissociated ego, another time as an ego cut off from the world, and yet again, most temptingly, as an ego that had not ceased to be, who was there in the most specific way, but in his very own world, though he might reveal himself to a clever psychiatrist, sympathetic super-observer, in short, a phenomenologist. Let us remember again, once again, one of Mark's caveats. We cannot tell from the mere taste of wheat who grew it. The product gives us no hint to the system and the relations of production. The product appears to be all the more specific, incredibly specific, and readily describable, the more closely the theoretician relates it to ideal forms of causati on comprehension, causation, that's, I've had, that's an awful space place for readings, <laughs> uh, ideal forms of causation, comprehension, or expression, rather than to the real process of production on which it depends. The schizophrenic appears all the more specific and recognize, recognizable as a distinct personality if the process is halted, or if it is made an end and a goal in itself, or if it is allowed to go on and on endlessly in a void, so as to provoke that horror of extremity wherein the soul and body ultimately perish, the autist. Crapelin's celebrated terminal state. But the moment that one describes, on the contrary, the material process of production, the specificity of the product tends to evaporate, while at the same time the possibility of another outcome, another end result of the process appears. Before being a mental state of the schizophrenic who has made himself into an artificial person through autism, schizophrenia is the process of the production of desire and desiring machines. How does one get from one to the other? And is transition inevitable? This remains the crucial question. Carl Jaspers has given us precious insights. 
on this point as on so many others, because his idealism was remarkably atypical. Contrasting the concept of process with those of reaction formation or development of the personality, he views process as a rupture or intrusion, having nothing to do with the imaginary relationship with the ego. Rather, it is a relationship with the demoniacal in nature. The one thing Jaspers failed to do was to view process as material economic reality, as the process of production wherein nature equals industry, nature equals history. That's the first time I've understood that paragraph as I was reading. That was good. This is is a tough one. It's a tough one, but it's um, a a lot of what we're talking about um, and and the previous paragraphs, I mean, really hit on this is they were very excited, essentially. Again, this is how I've been reading this. They're excited about how psychiatry and psychoanalysis had grown. And then at some point, Freud, by putting Oedipus in there, basically forced Mm -hmm. us into a place where things are no longer part of a process, but instead ultimately... uh, uh, through some weird idealization, a fount, a place yeah. things just exist in a vacuum, and we don't really look beyond that anymore. And a lot of this this paragraph is very much about that, understanding what causation, how these things work together, when in reality, what things are is a process of production, which everything depends. So would you say that this um, idea of Jasper's thinking that process is a rupture or intrusion is a idealist mistake they're trying to point that out? I think so, um, because again, they're they're ultimately trying to get back to a materialist conception of how all of this works together. And I think when they talk about Marx's caveat about the taste of wheat, and from the taste of wheat, we can't tell who grew it. If we're looking at the way that uh, any of these specific signs appear or how these moments appear inside of the world of a schizophrenic into themselves, we can't tell what ultimately created those things. All of these things are part of a process of production, even in the psychiatric and psychoanalytic realm. Is that close? Yeah, there, I, think, yeah I, I mean, the, the part that I focus on in this paragraph actually happens in the beginning. Um, there's a not so subtle attack on phenomenology here. And um, it connects with the this notion of not being able to know where the wheat was produced just by the taste of it. Um, there's a trend in Marxism that comes from Althusser, uh, who posed a, a very significant attack on phenomenology, whereby he said, look, you can't do phenomenology in the raw as a sort of idealism. You need to know the productive processes that are behind the production of phenomenon because essentially our apprehension of reality is a misapprehension. Um, And that follows Marx's notion of ideology, right? And of course, Althusser has developed his own notion of ideology and he took it and ran with it. And so the problem here is that the psychiatrist is much like the phenomenologist in one sense. Like you can't simply posit um, the nature of reality or the nature of consciousness simply from the position of consciousness, from the position of tasting wheat. Ah, that's what wheat tastes like. Okay, what does that tell us about the nature of how we taste and, and how we interpret that taste? Well, we're missing something. We need to know the real processes of production, which produce the modes of experiencing things in the world. And I, I want to quote uh, a Ghost Boy. I believe I'm pronouncing your name right. 
Uh, he, in the chat, he says, uh, the metaphor of not knowing the source of wheat by its taste suggests a framework to undermine his forthcoming point. Presumably, a wheat specialist could distinctify these sources, and a schizophrenic specialist could distinguish these schizophrenic factors. Yeah, I mean, look, the, at any point, this analogy can break down, right? <laughs> um, but I, I just, I just like that it was a, it was an amusing yeah. point, actually. Right. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, I don't know if I'm 100% on board with, the, you know, the charge against phenomenology. You know, maybe there is a way, for example, that we could derive productive processes from a highly um, articulated sense of taste or touch or sight or something like that. I mean, at some point. I think we have to concede the fact that, well, how is it that you know that reality has been misapprehended? Or how is it that you know that you can't know where wheat has been produced just by the taste of it, right? So, I mean, it's that, that sort of challenge is, is posed to us here. Uh, one thing to do is to kind of um, distinguish between phenomenology and hermeneutics. You know, hermeneutics is the interpretation process, and phenomenology is just the description of the, the phenomena. And, uh, and so the, uh, uh, the thing about the Oedipal thing, the Oedipal interpretation is that the, it is a form of hermeneutics, but it's a form of hermeneutics where you're going to impose the same interpretation no matter what on the phenomena. And so that I think that's the thing that they are uh, railing against is the idea that whatever come whatever the phenomena is, we're going to call it Oedipal. And 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 kind of what that means is that that we're going to assign it to a whole person, you know, the daddy or the mommy or me, right? Rather than looking at the phenomena more closely and seeing that there are like breaks in the in the. Uh, in, in in the in the manifestation of the phenomena there's like discontinuity so that you can't just say that it's it's a unity you there are it it has breaks in it and and in an extreme situation it can become like a delirium no i think that's good yeah I just like to mention Jaspers. You know, uh, he wrote um, this book called Reason and Existence, and uh, and he also wrote a three-volume work uh, called Philosophy, which was written prior to uh, Reason and Existence. So Reason and Existence is like a great summary that actually goes beyond his three-volume work on philosophy. But th what that three-volume work on philosophy was is was about Basically, what he did was he he read Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, and mostly Kierkegaard, and took out the idea that um, that 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 we relate directly to the transcendent, and and so he called that existence. What what uh, Heidegger called Dasein, Jaspers called existence, and uh, it, it's interesting to note that if you read Crystal's work. On the uh, origin of uh, being in time, um, in there, uh, Crystal talks about the fact that uh, Heidegger actually got the terminology of existentialism from Jaspers, and he wrote a critique of Jaspers' use of that terminology. But then, when he got around to writing being in time, he totally adopted the existential 
terminology. So prior to that, he he wasn't going in an existential direction. He, I think he he realized that it, it was becoming popular and decided to adopt it. Excellent. Excellent. Shall we? Shall we move yeah, on? Continue. Yeah. Um, where are we? We're on we are at a two Oh, oh, let me do this one. Go for yeah. it. Okay. So to a certain degree, the traditional logic of desire is all wrong from the very outset. From the very first step that the platonic logic of desire forces us to take, making us choose between production and acquisition. From the moment that we place desire on the side of acquisition, we make desire an idealistic, dialectical, nihilistic concept, conception, which causes us to look upon it pri as primarily a lack, a lack of an object, a lack of the real subject. It is true that the other side, the production side, has not been entirely ignored. Kant, for instance, must be credited with effecting a critical revolution as regards the theory of desire by attributing to it the faculty of being through its representations, the cause of the reality of the objects of these representations. But it is not by chance that Kant chooses superstitious beliefs, hallucinations, and fantasies as illustrations of this definition of desire. As Kant would have it, we are all well aware that the real object can be produced only by an external causality and external mechanisms. Nonetheless, this knowledge does not prevent us from believing in the intrinsic power of desire to create its own object, if only in an unreal, hallucinatory, or delirious form, or from representing this causality as stemming from within desire itself. The reality of the object, insofar as it is produced by desire, is thus a psychic reality. Hence, it could be said that Kant's critical revolution changes nothing essential. This way of conceiving of productivity does not question the validity of the conception, classical conception of desire as lack. Rather, it uses this conception as a support and a buttress and merely examines its implications more carefully. Um, I actually wrote um, about this paragraph in particular <clears throat> in my thesis, and I think it's important to point out like, what do they mean by platonic logic of desire? And so just to revisit that, we have production, producing things, and acquisition, consuming things. And what they're saying is, from a philosophical standpoint, we've always been on this consumptive side of desire uh, when it comes to understanding uh, the drive to eat or to sleep or to procreate. It comes... How? Well, via um, feeling a lack. I feel a lack of food. I have a lack of sleep. I've had a lack of sex. Um, in Plato, how does it play out? Um, one place to look is in his symposium. And I'll just read a very short piece um, from my uh, thesis here. I said, in Diotima's account of Eros in Plato's symposium, she divides desire as a kind of, quote unquote, wanting, a bulistai in Greek. Eros, in, our, in its broadest sense, is a desire for what is beautiful, which is synonymous with or entails a desire for what is good, all that which the mortal lacks and confined in the pursuit of immortality and universal happiness, with Eros standing in the gap between mortal and divine. Plato institutes a fundamental break between that which desires and the objects which are desired. So 
um, this this notion of a break being in desire is actually articulated in the symposium um, and is is connected with the notion of of eros being as the sort of stand in between um, the things that we want. So eros in the, in Plato's world is the figure of lack. And I'm curious um, if there's any reactions to that. Sorry, that like I just have to pick up my jaw real quick. <laughs> that... I'd like to I'd like to mention that this production and acquisition, uh, where where this is specifically uh, mentioned, is in the uh, in the uh, sophist. Uh, in the definition of the sophist, there's a long binary progression by which they get to the definition of the sophist, and and near the beginning they distinguish between production and acquisition and mm. and go toward the side of acquisition rather than production so right. so it's it's like fishing you know the, right. the, the, what the sophist does is he fishes for young men who are uh, mm -hmm. want to learn how to talk and to teach them to do that so he he's on a the sophist is on a fishing expedition so it's kind of interesting that just by saying this distinction between pro production and acquisition he's referring there to that particular place in plato i believe and, and also, too, that's true. Um, also, um, it's connected to Sophus. The Theodetus, Sophus, and the Statesman are all connected uh, dialogues. And um, I think all of those are considered the aporetic dialogues. I could be wrong about that. Um, but I know the Sophist and the Statesman and aporetically in the sense that the, in the sophist, they once they finalize, they find, or actually, it's in the statesman. I'm sorry, in the statesman, when they finally define like who is the true statesman, it really leaves room for understanding, or uh, it leaves room for a sophist actually appearing as someone who is the statesman. And I, I just want to connect that to the notion of production and acquisition because. Plato from the very start is like, okay, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to divide it between this and that, production and acquisition. And after following, following his line of logic via the method of division, he comes to an aporia. Like, well, we can't solve this problem because the person that we define to be the true one, the true statesman, could actually also be the sophist. And so um, the, the problem sort of lingers over the history of philosophy after that. <laughs> So a lot of the people in the chat are going for uh, charming ahead and reading ahead. So maybe we should continue. Let's do it. <clears throat> I mean, I can, I can do the next one. Right? Please do. Okay. So in point of fact, if desire is the lack of the real object, its very nature as a real entity depends upon an essence of lack, quote unquote, that produces the fantasized object. <clears throat> desire thus conceived of as production, though really the production of fantasies has been explained perfectly by psychoanalysis <clears throat> on the very lowest level of interpretation. This means that the real object that desire lacks is related to an extrinsic natural or a social production, whereas desire intrinsically produces an imaginary object that functions as a double of reality, as though there were a dreamed of quote, dreamed of object behind every real object, unquote, or a mental production behind all real productions. This conception does not necessarily compel psychoanalysis to engage in a study of gadgets and markets in the form of an utterly dreary and dull psychoanalysis of the object. Psychoanalytic studies of packages of noodles, cars, or thingamajigs. 
but even when the fantasy is interpreted in depth, not simply as an object, but as a specific machine that brings desire itself front and center, this machine is merely theatrical, and the complementarity of what it sets apart still remains. It is now need that is defined in terms of a relative lack and uh, and determined by its own object, whereas desire is regarded as what produces the fantasy and produces itself by detaching itself from the object, though at the same time it intensifies the lack by making it absolute and, quote, incurable insufficiency of being, unquote, and, quote, inability to be that is life itself, unquote. Hence, the presentation of desire as something supported by needs, while these needs and their relationship to the object is something that is lacking or missing, continue to be the basis of the productivity of desire theory, theory of an underlying support. In a word, when the theoretician reduces desire and production to a production of fantasy, he is content to explain to the fullest the idealist principle that defines desire as lack, rather than a process of production of industrial, quote-unquote, production. Clement Rosset puts it very well. Every time the emphasis is put on a lack, the desire supposedly suffers <clears throat> from as a way of defining its object, quote, the world acquires as its double some other sort of world in accordance with the following line of argument. There is an object that desire feels the lack of, hence the world, hence the world does not contain an object that desire Oh, sorry. Hence, the world does not contain each and every object that exists. There is at least one object missing, the one that desire feels the lack of. Hence, there exists some other place that contains the key to desire missing in this world. Unquote. Right, that was a long one. <clears throat> I think that end bit on Rosset is, is very yeah. interesting because it, it's almost like an Occam's razor argument where... Deleuze and Gattari are asking you to uh, consider, hey, what's a more plausible explanation um, to, uh, when it comes to the ontology of desire? Is it more like desiring machines, like we're saying, or is it like this other thing like Plato and Kant and others are saying, where ultimately what, what is required in order for their theory to work is we have to posit a double world, this extra thing that doesn't exist in, inside the reality, uh, the, the sphere of real production as we understand it. Yeah, to me, it almost reads as a sort of um, like Cantor's diagonal argument saying that, like, if you take this approach to desire, then you need to posit this fantasy beyond things, uh, you know, because if you try to just talk about what there is, then you come up with this term in the series that's beyond them all. Yeah. And what, you know, who this is... Uh... You know, talking about it, I think is Sartre and Lacan. Sartre and Lacan both had this basic idea that the lack is primary. Right. Oh, this is a hundred percent a critique of Lacan. Like it's lack is so central to everything he believed and everything he put forward and its relation to desire. This has to be a direct response, almost like speaking to Lacan directly. I think a good question to ask ourselves as as readers of this, you know, either looking at the page or or, or averting our eyes for a second, what is their argument um, against the notion that hey, we have natural needs, meaning you know, food, uh, need for food, need for water, sleep, and so forth, and how does their theory of desire overcome that? 
and they they get right down to it in, in the middle um, by saying, um, "I lost the line here." Oh, um, but even when the fantasy is interpreted, oh wait, no, that's not it. Actually, I'll let me come back to that. But my point being is this: is like what they need to overcome is well. Then how do you explain when somebody is hungry? So the theory of the desiring machines needs to incorporate the notion of hunger. What is it that that hunger is reaching out for? I mean, I think just to kind of hypothesize what they would answer is that the hunger sort of emerged with the machine and it's, you know, it's uh, trying to reproduce its own feeding. Yeah, I, I think that that's about right. I'm looking for the line here. I lost the, 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 the basic idea here is the uh, that that need is something that's produced. Right. So, so like, for instance, in the United States, uh, uh, you know, the food in the grocery store, like like half of it's thrown away. Um, and so and so there's an abundance. But then there's all these people that are in poverty and don't have enough to eat. And so, you know, in the face of, of, of what is really an abundance, the, the production system is throwing away uh, like half of the food and, uh, and, and people are starving. So that's a produced lack. That's what they're. Well, it, and it's, I think it would be worth, uh, because I think the next paragraph is actually the one you might be looking for, Craig, because it's yeah. almost a direct answer to what we're talking about. I'll, I'll give a quick read through that and we can continue. Okay. Um, if desire produces, its product is real. Like I said, it's almost a direct answer to what we we're saying. If desire is productive, it can be productive only in the real world and can produce only reality. Desire is the set of paths, passive syntheses that engineer partial objects, flows, and bodies, and that function as units of production. The real is the end product. The result of the passive syntheses of desire as auto-production of the unconscious. Desire does not lack anything. It does not lack its object. It is rather the subject that is missing in desire, or desire that lacks a fixed subject. There is no fixed subject unless there is repression. Desire and its object are one and the same thing. The machine is a machine of a machine. Desire is a machine, and the object of desire is another machine connected to it. Hence, the product is something removed or deducted from the process of producing. Between the act of producing and the product, something becomes detached, thus giving the vagabond, nomad subject, a residuum. The objective being of desire is the real in and of itself. There is no particular form of existence that can be labeled psychic reality. As Marx notes, what exists, in fact, is not lack, but passion, as a natural and sensuous object. Desire is not bolstered by needs, but rather the contrary. Needs are derived from desire. They are counterproducts within the real that desire produces. Lack is a counter-effect of desire. It is deposited distributed, vacualized within a real that is natural and social. Desire always remains in close touch with the conditions of objective existence. It embraces them and follows them, shifts when they shift and does not outlive them. For that reason, it so often becomes the desire to die, 
whereas need is a measure of the withdrawal of a subject that has lost its desire at the same time that it loses the passive synthesis of these conditions. This is precisely the significance of need as a search in the void. Hunting about, trying to capture or become a parasite of passive syntheses in whatever vague world they may happen to exist in. It is no use saying, we are not green plants. We have long since been unable to synthesize chlorophyll, so it's necessary to eat. Desire then becomes this abject fear of lacking something. But it should be noted, this is not a phrase uttered by the poor or the dispossessed. On the contrary, such people know that they are close to grass, almost akin to it, and that desire needs very few things. Not those leftovers that chance to come their way, but the very things that are continually taken from them. And that what is missing is not things the subject feels the lack of, somewhere deep down inside himself, but rather the objectivity of man, the objective being of man, for whom to desire is to produce, to produce within the realm of the real. The real is not impossible. On the contrary, within the real, everything is possible. Everything becomes possible. Desire does not express a molar lack within the subject. Rather, the molar organization deprives desire of its objective being. Revolutionaries, artists, and seers are content to be objective, merely objective. They know that desire clasps life in its powerfully productive embrace and reproduces it in a way that is all the more intense because it has few needs. Never mind those who believe that this is very easy to say or that it is the sort of idea to be found in books. From the little reading I had done, I had observed that the men who were most in life, who were molding life, who were life itself, ate little, slept little, owned little or nothing. They had no illusions about duty or the perpetuation of their kith and kin or the, prevent, per, uh, or the preservation of the state. The phantasmal world is the world which has never been fully conquered over. It is the world of the past, never the future. To move forward, clinging to the past is like dragging a ball and chain. The true visionary is a Spinoza in the garb of a Neapolitan revolutionary. We may, we may very well where lack and its subjective correlative come from. Lack, manke, a Lucanian term, is created, planned and organized in and through social production. It is counterproduced as a result of the pressure of anti-production. The latter falls back on, Sarah Batsor, the forces of production and appropriates them. It is never primary. Production is never organized on the basis of a pre-existing need or lack. It is lack that infiltrates itself, creates empty spaces or vacuoles, and propagates itself in accordance with the organization of an already existing organization of production. The deliberate creation of lack as a function of market economy is the art of the dominant class. This involves deliberately organizing wants and needs amid an abundance of production making all of desire teeter and fall victim to the great fear of not having one's needs satisfied and making the object dependent upon a real production that is supposedly exterior to desire, the demands of rationality, while at the same time the production of desire is categorized as fantasy and nothing but fantasy. I adore this entire section. In, in, in reading prep for this uh, talk today, I could not help but read through this and think about where we are in terms of the ruling class asking people to go back to work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. 
It's a, uh, I, well, I, I adore so many parts in this, and I think uh, there's so much to discuss. I just, I just adore this section. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, I mean, one of the places where this comes out is uh, the, 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 the countries in Europe that are, uh, get, the state is supplying their, uh, their salaries so that they can stay employed while they're uh, in quarantine. And in the United States, they decided to throw everyone into unemployment so that they can really feel the lack. Yeah. The, the line that really stands out to me in this massive paragraph that spans, what, two and a half pages, <laughs> uh, is the one, it's on page 27 towards the bottom. Uh, it says, desire does not express a molar lack within the subject. Rather, the molar organization deprives desire of its objective being. I think all the comments about politics and, and what have you today uh, re like can really be summarized in, in that statement. Moeller here being a, a sort of dominant uh, configuration of desiring production within any given society. Um, and if we, if you read a thousand plateaus, they they go into that term a little bit more. But I like how they position the notion of molar lack against molar organization. It's lack that falls out of molar organization, and as we were saying, is is a kind of uh, a creation of anti-production. And just like Brooks was saying, hey, get back to work. We need to anti-produce bodies who are going <laughs> to die from COVID-19 or at least put themselves at risk for that just so that the capitalist economy can run. So we, we get this production and anti-production. What's remarkable, uh, and maybe like you could get kind of Lacanian is like there's this this creation of this big other right we'll stay away from that but like of the of the populace that desperately wants to go back to work that is frustrated with all of these um stay in place orders and and I think yeah that's that's uniquely at play here also so if if you're if you're feeling low out there today, Deleuze and Gattari want you to know that you are good enough, you are smart enough, and gosh darn people like you. This is this is one of the messages here that no one lacks anything. No specific organism has a, an inherent sense of lack. That we are all configured in such a way uh, as sensuous uh, objects, sensuous beings. Uh, like, like we said, sort of whose needs are basically a derivative of that. They are passions that are part of who we are. And when those things get configured in such a way so that they cannot, you know, make the sort of connections that, that are affirmative of their life. Um, and while being made to think that they lack those things inherently, that's the essence of political repression. But I'm sorry, I cut somebody off. Oh, I, yeah, I think, um, what was I going to say? Um, yeah, I was coming up with this uh, kind of metaphor for the way they're explaining lack as a production. Uh, to me, kind of, I'm understanding in terms of uh, the game Go, where like, you know, there's two players and they start out equally and you're just putting pieces on the board. But kind of what happens is because of the rules, you get these spaces with no pieces on them and one player is kind of trying to protect them. And um, so, yeah, I think there's like this cool analogy between the, you know, if you know the rules if or better yet, if you get to design the rules of the game and the other players don't do that and don't know the rules as well, 
you can kind of break the system in this way to produce a lack that uh, is also has real effects in the world. And this uh, emancipatory element that Craig was talking about just a minute ago really falls back to Spinoza, all the way back to Spinoza and Deleuze being one of the biggest uh, scholars of him, even though he's not uh, directly talking about him usually, right? And what Spinoza does actually with his determinism and with his uh, theory, right, with his God, is that he says, and we'll get to this later in the next section, in the next paragraph, I think, with the Canadus. But what Spinoza essentially says is that this world is done this way, right? And what we do later with our affects and what we, uh, the way we articulate them and the way we move towards something else is up to us. But there's no need of just falling back to some primordial lack in hope of, uh, in that way, I don't know, explaining what's going on with us. Spinoza says, no, there's no lack. Essentially, everything that is there is there, right? And we need mm. to make something of it or deal with these affects which uh, don't help us or which reduce our power uh, in a different way, right? No, that's good. Yeah. And that's the de definitely a great way to bring in Spinoza here. I mean, I, believe, I firmly believe that Spinoza is in every paragraph of the book. Yeah, that's right. Once you read Spinoza, I mean, uh, differently from Deleuze, and once you read him by himself, you, I mean, you will never just uh, stop seeing him everywhere you go. With Deleuze, I think. I just got a quick question. Uh, what is this reference to the gar Spinoza in the garb of a Neapolitan revolutionary? Why Neapolitan? I'm not sure about that one myself. Yeah, okay. yeah I don't know. I, I, I didn't get that. Well, and I, it's worth mentioning also, uh, just before that sentence, actually, he's quoting uh, Henry Miller there. Uh, so it's uh, from Sexus, uh, Henry Miller's trilogy, The Rosie Crucif Crucifixion. Um, oh, okay. Where he's talking about his life in the Bronx. It's, I mean, it's Henry Miller. It's Tropic of Cancer. It's fictionalized reality. Um, so it's not literally his world, but uh, he's very much there talking about the people around him in, uh, I believe, the Bronx uh, and uh, the way poverty was treated there and how the poor lived. Uh, really interesting. I don't, I don't remember a lot of the context around that, but uh, just mentioning it's, Henry, it's Miller for sure. My conjecture is the, the admiration comes from uh, it's that it's the admiration of Napoleon in the same uh, vein that Nietzsche has of Napoleon toy of the idol. Okay. Where he goes. I, was, I was wondering about that. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he, even he takes it as if to say like, it's, it's the military vision of someone who could logistically bring things together, I would say. But it's more of a visionary that Spinoza has rather than the, the militaristic vision. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So the, the reason that Nietzsche prides, uh, uh, admires Napoleon is the fact that he's willing to bring in a sort of uh, uh, non-systematic way of executing the commands that he had. He's always... But even further with Nietzsche's admiration of, of Napoleon is in, in uh, the joyful science, the gay science, uh, the fact that 
Napoleon awakens the Volk, right? He 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 instigates in in Nietzsche's eyes kind of the German culture that that if there wasn't kind of this moment of awakening um, to respond to Napoleon, that 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 this entire population, this entire culture would not exist in its collective response to the French Empire. Um, you know, somebody in the chat is asking you guys where Napoleon is coming in. Where is he coming from? In what you're discussing right now. My, I was, I was maybe misconstruing Naples with Napoleon. Yeah, no, no, no. He's, he's not on. We're not on the text. Instead, we're we're, right. we're looking at, at at a Nietzschean perspective on kind of what what it is to to liberate uh, through like an Afro like an an affirmative reading of Deleuze rather than one that is purely critique. Right, reading the chats. Somebody wanted a clarification. It's also worth pointing out uh, the the use of the word lack and need here technically is contextual. Uh, Manqui is a French word that means uh, kind of the thing I don't have. Uh, it's it's a very unique word. A lot of French words are difficult to translate. Technically, it means lack and need. Uh, so it's purely contextual. So they are very similar uh, throughout the text. It's purely there's contextual. A, there's a footnote on the yeah, there's a footnote on that that yeah. the translator made sure we saw. I just want to make sure everyone got a chance to know that because we're reading this and not everyone has the text in front of them. Yeah. Uh, in that vein, then, um, when it... Uh, the uh, the footnote on page twenty seven um, about Lacan I think is very helpful. If if anybody who's who's kind of more experienced with Deleuze and his relationship to to the bringing well, so, psychoanalysis to the point of autocritique. Yeah, I, I can I can get a little bit into this. I'm sure people some people have a better understanding. But um, the kind of running joke for a lot of this was that Lacan. Was Lacan was always asking Deleuze to explain what he was doing. He was always uh, poking and prodding at him, and they had a, uh, we'll say, a, a contestuous relationship. Mm-hmm. The, the way that this footnote is written, Lacan's uh, Lacan's admirable theory of desire uh, is is very French way of kind of with a little bit of a fuck you in there. Like, yeah. it's, oh, it's so admirable. It's a, uh, no, the, so it's their relationship was always fascinating. So he's. They very much constantly throughout this text and others uh, are throwing barbs in his direction, for sure. Yeah. I'm sure some people have uh, some more examples of that. But when they talk in this footnote, uh, very specifically about the object petite A, mm-hmm. uh, the object small a, uh, as a desiring machine, which defines desire in terms of a real production, thus going beyond both any idea of need and any idea of fantasy, the other related to the great other as a signifier. Uh, the great other being the, the way you believe you're perceived, which reintroduces mm-hmm. a certain notion of lack. Uh, and these two poles and the oscillation between them can be seen clearly. They, again, are sort of mocking that concept of having the two poles uh, because they believe, again, uh, that this is introduced ultimately by, and again, I don't fully understand this, but it's uh, introduced by Oedipus in that sort of position of not everything is production, whereas they believe everything is very much about the production of desire and lack. Oh, perfect. I'd just like to mention that this uh, object, Petit A, is um, an anamorphic object. And uh, Zizek uh, spends a lot of time talking about anamorphic objects and um, a, uh, a 
a, a good book to get into that is uh, Looking Awry, where he uh, mm -hmm. sees it in film, sees these anamorphic objects in film and in literature. But sorry, by anamorphic, you mean without shape? Uh, anamorphic, okay, so there's a famous painting of two noblemen, and there's a skull painted on that painting, but you can only see that Got skull yeah. if oh. you are looking at it awry or at askance or at an angle. It, it just looks like a blob when you look at the, 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 the skull straight on. But if you're standing off to the side, you see it's definitely. So, so the form of objects um, uh, that they take on is uh, related to the perspective from which you're viewing the object. So uh, Lacan has these three registers, which are the symbolic, the real, and the imaginary. And if you think of that as a triangle, then the, the, uh, the, the anamorphic objects are like mediating between each pair of those. And there's three anamorphic objects. One's this object, petite a, the other is the phallus, and the other is a little piece of the real. And um, I think the, the little piece of the real is very um, uh, kind of like significant for us nowadays because the little piece of the real is like a grain of sand that gets caught in a very uh, smoothly functioning machine and brings it to a stop. And so that the coronavirus is a little, a little bit like that. It's an invisible thing that's very small that brings the whole economy to a stop. And a, a really good book, Looking Awry, is wonderful. The, the one that I would say is a little easier for those of you who are more like me and don't have necessarily a huge background in uh, you know, actual philosophy. Uh, everything you wanted to know about Lacan but were afraid to ask, ask Hitchcock, is, uh, it's a long title, is very much uh, sort of like a junior version of Looking Awry, where he, he looks through uh, a lot of Hitchcockian moments in his films and explains Lacanian principles through that. Uh, it helped me understand a lot of these really basic things. But Kent, it's, I want to ask, because you bring up the real, and this last paragraph, a lot of this, as I'm reading it and as I was reading it last night, felt like they were very much attacking the concept uh, that Lacan has used for the real when they say things like, for example, uh, it's possible to produce within the realm of the real. The real is not impossible. On the contrary, within the real, everything is possible. It feels like a... Uh, a challenge to the Lacanian concept of yeah, that. Yeah, well, I think, I think you're right. I, I, see, the thing is that, like, Zizek um, distinguishes between reality and the real, okay? So what, what they're calling the real here is, I think, what Zizek would call reality. It's not, it's not this, it's not the anamorphic object. But see, I think it's interesting in the footnote that he says that the small... The, the small object I is a desire as a desiring machine. So he they're interpreting the desiring machine as an anamorphic object. And I think that's an interesting connection between what Zizek is talking about and what they're talking about. It seems to me though that Deleuze and Guattari totally reject the um, symbolic, imaginary, and real as like distinct. Uh, that could well be that. I, would, I, mean, like, uh, I mean, some people define the real as like that which you can't symbolize. But if you're critiquing representation itself, then like you can't. There's nothing you can't symbolize. The symbolization is itself like historicizable. 
Well, so, when, when they th when they talk about reality, I think they're talking about the same thing Kant's talking about when he talks about the new. Mm -hmm. I yeah, think uh, an unsecurable thing. Oh, oh, go ahead. Who is that? No, you go ahead. It's it's fine. Uh, I was going to say, yeah. Um, it might be too quick to say that Deleuze and Guattari don't believe in representation. They do believe it is a derivative of something like molar objectivity. So insofar as any sort of <clears throat> configuration of desire can become dominant and attempt to impose itself on something, I mean, that's, that's a real product of desire. And one of the things that it produces is lack, as we're talking here. And, and how does it convey lack? Well, we're going to get into this as we move forward uh, into the text, but they're going to say that, that signs and signifiers are one of the ways in which desire is caught into this scheme of lack. So they do exist, but they don't believe it's fundamental to the situation of desire. Mm -hmm. Somebody else wanted to get in there? I have a, another thing that I wanted to point out and maybe uh, solicit some interpretations. It was uh, right after that section about the, the molar lack and modernization, uh, page 27. They're talking about revolutionaries, artists, and seers. They say revolutionaries, artists, and seers are content to be objective, merely objective. They know that desire clasps, clasps life in its powerfully productive embrace and produces it in a way that is all the more intense because it has few needs. And never mind those who believe that this is very easy to say or that it is this sort of idea to be found in books, and they go on from there. But um, I'm actually really compelled by the notion that there's, there's certain kinds of people, uh, namely revolutionaries, artists, and so forth, uh, for whom the, their, their, um, their existence is in some ways defined by um, staving off certain kinds of needs, or maybe going without, or maybe organizing their lives in such a way that they're not connected to the way reality is being produced. So you imagine that they're valorizing the kind of figure under capitalism, for example, somebody who stands outside the uh, the, the social order in some sense, right? Or yeah, the, is kind of off the grid in terms of the way their desire is organized. The the kind of the barbarian that we would see later coming from the outside. Um, but I think like then these same figures, right, would have the same oppositional relationship with Oedipus too, right? Would you say it's barbarian though? I don't know if it's barbaric for someone to be outside. I think again, I mean, this is more I mean it in I mean it in Deleuze's reworking of of or I guess analysis of the, the five categories from Marx's history. The hmm. the the entity that, that comes kind of from the outside. Is he drawing some sort of comparison here, I guess is what I'm trying to get to. I feel I feel this is chain again i feel this thing this appeals towards the idea that especially in those books zarathustra nietzsche is talking about the person who has the great disdain mm -hmm. right he has that person who who's who's does it who who says dude leave him alone let, let if the dog comes up to lap him to get to to help him up let him let him go to at least let him stand on his own feet for his own ideas will let him be supported on his own and he talks about this in a thing in the beginning of the of the book where he goes marketplace of years are not a place for the creative soul right right he calls them flies you don't have don't go there because all you'll be doing is swatting their flies away 
but I guess and what I my question that. comes down to though is is this uh is this use of of the world uh the word um merely or the two words merely objective um that that all of these various uh stimuli like the the things that surround the artist or the revolutionary are not kind of teleologically contextualized by these uh what was it that that craig said these molar aggregates um they they can kind of exist outside of it they they don't constantly have to fold um and move within these motions on on kind of this controlled highway um and uh, like that's what i i see it as as sort of an an epistemological break um that that's moving maybe closer to to um this concept of 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 the schizo I, I what think this merely objective thing is used as kind of mocking the ones who uh, who continually highlight this idealistic way of you know conceptualizing things and this can be seen i think and connected to the notions of surface and false depths that we already discussed in the previous mm-hmm. chapters uh, they they would i can picture them saying what i'm trying to say is saying content to be on the surface merely on the surface mocking those with this mock with this mocking those that think that uh, true meaning and meaning of course quote unquote is uh, found in the depths or, or some kind of uh, uh, i don't know some kind of idealistic conception right yeah, this is a that's kind of an interesting sentence that I've locked into here. I I think they have somebody like Antonin Artaud in mind. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And um, I I I actually have somebody from my life during my college days who, who reminded me very much of Artaud, and in many ways. And so having that firsthand experience with somebody like that, and then reading their example of Artaud, it makes me think that. Once you have somebody who sort of disavows the 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 sort of mainstream milieu of the, the molar milieu, the way that desire is organized as we understand it, there's an increase uh, in intensity and sensitivity to the field of desire as um, as it's produced in in some sort of primary sense. Like once you get outside the the constraints of, let's say, capitalist society, you're going to find that, wow, it's actually really hard to subsist outside of that system. And it's going to awaken within you an awareness. Um, It might even create new affects. by necessity, so that you can live, like if, if, for example, you try to live in some or utopic community, it's really making the break with capitalist society entails this sort of existential shift. And that's one mm-hmm. of the things that I think is at work here. I know Gattari goes into this deeper into uh, in his book um, on psychoanalysis and transversalities. Uh, one of one of the essays in there talks about the sort of existential denuding that happens of the revolutionary. You just get this enhanced sensitivity to the state of affairs uh, that produces the world that we're within. And once you disavow them, well, now it's up to you to create that reality. So one of the things here, when we're talking about the passage, especially from Miller's book, um, when he talks about uh, people who had no illusions about duty, 
perpetuation of kith and kin or the preservation of the state. Um, the a lot of Miller's writings, and I'm I'm certain this one too, very much talked about uh, the people who lived within their passions, and mm. and as they lived within their passions, they they did away with things that were just unnecessary. And it's not so much that they did so consciously. It's one of the things I think. Um, you know, they talk about a little bit in here, uh, but it's it's less a conscious thing and more a these things simply don't occur to them. It's not their world of desiring machines doesn't have the desires about duty, doesn't have the desires about state perpetuation, having family, all of those things. Instead, it's much more for them about just living into the world, uh, the phantasmal world that he refers to in here. Uh, and again, it's through a lot of Miller's writings uh, is what I would call the bullshit baggage that we're raised with, that we're told the, the the way we need to act and how we need to behave and what we need to do inside of that. All of that, as he says here, is the world of the past, never the future. And to move forward clinging to the past is like dragging a ball and chain. So necessarily revolutionaries, artists, seers, people who are able to help us push forward would be people who have cast that aside. Yeah. And, and I wonder where in this this passage of uh, Miller uh, that you read and highlighted, where does anti-production fit in all of this? And it really feels, uh, from what you've been saying right now, this feels a lot like what we've discussed regarding anti-production, right? <clears throat> I, I also want to bring up, and I'm going to post it, uh, I've been trying to figure out what the hell Spinoza in the garb of a Neapolitan revolutionary is a reference to. Um, I was uh, actually yeah, doing a bit. Uh, the, so, uh, it turns I, out Spinoza had a, a sketchbook in which he had a Neapolitan revolutionary huh. uh, that he drew. I'm going to post a picture of it in the chat. That's, yeah, that's, that's too weird of a specific coincidence. To, yeah. So, uh, and it, it was uh, supposed to go up... Uh, in 1955, so that's around actually the time of all of this, or certainly in the lifetime of the losing Guitari. Uh, that's when it was first sort of talked about and reintroduced. So, mm. timing-wise, feels uh, unique. I think I think one of the things to to think about is the uh, you know the uh, you know as people were planning to go into quarantine, you know there was this big rush to the uh, big box stores. And because of, of this perceived lack that was going to occur, and it was, you know, I mean, counter um, effective because a lot of those people that were getting together to get the stuff to go into quarantine were actually transmitting the virus to each other. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's a good good analogy for that yeah that reminds me of uh of marcuse's analysis of how uh sort of systems of capital can make two rational actors do things that are like subjectively rational to them but actually when you engage in the imminent critique seem irrational um and i i think this is like a perfect little instantiation of how these sorts of systems can drive uh, broad irrationality, but at like the micro subjective level, seems like really rational and makes a lot of sense. Well, what Spinoza artist? My question. Uh, the the Spinoza thing, just to add in a little bit of that, uh, specifically the sketch uh, is a portrait of Massaniello, uh Tommaso, who's the, the leader, with a face very similar to Spinoza's. So Spinoza drew this portrait. It's a bit of a self portrait, but it's of this Neapolitan rebel. 
So a true visionary is Spinoza in the garb of a Neapolitan revolutionary is actually, this is the thing. This is that. That's so good. That's amazing. You detective you. You know, the, the thing about the thing about uh, Deleuze is it's just full of things like that. Little references to stuff that you never imagined. I, I think uh, talking about anti-production is important because it's going to come up the next time we, we get together and uh, read about the distinction between social production and desiring production. Um, it's worth maybe mentioning more examples uh, related to what's happening now. I think about for example, how numerous people just live on this planet, or at least in the United States, uh, with just massive amounts of student debt. Places like Japan, uh, where maybe 30 years ago, um, you know, personal or private debt wasn't a, a big issue, but now is for many people um, ha has sort of emerged over time. But within the past few weeks, how many dispensations have been made at the level of uh, large corporations and governments to ameliorate some of those problems, like the, just the, the massive amount of money they put out there, you know, to cover the shortfall that, that has occurred as a result of the coronavirus crisis hitting. And that money could have been there to uh, alleviate people's debt in the United States, for example. And, um, you know, now the rent strikes, strike is about to go into effect and some of the renting class, uh, the rentier class in the United States, they're like, all right, I guess we'll, you won't have to pay this month. Um, and all of those little nodes of, of change, I think, can be conceptualized as nodes of anti-production that had to reverse themselves or suspend themselves because the anti-production produced or anti-produced under the, the coronavirus crisis was so intense that the, the only way to, to make sure that capitalism survives is okay, these other, these other mechanisms of anti-production that we built into the system, we have to press the pause button on them for a short time. Right on. <laughs> no, I, I think that's, I, I think right we should pause there. Uh, I've marked yeah. in the PDF where we're at so we can jump right back to, I believe, page 51. Uh, uh, in the text is it 51 it's 51 it's 28 in the book but it's uh page 51 of the pdf um as uh there's so much that is just worth discussing through all of this and uh this has been this has been so useful for me the spinoza thing alone is fascinating i highly suggest you guys read through mancinello's uh wikipedia which i linked to in the chat um it it makes that sentence actually I am not completely certain of it, but uh, it really does start to help understand what we mean when we talk about where correlative lack may come from, how it's created, and what a true visionary is. I think it applies in that situation, mm -hmm. but it, you have to know a lot about these di two different people. And I don't know nearly enough about Spinoza, or and I know nothing about Mancinello uh, before today. So we will get there. Uh, uh, do you want to take uh, one more shot, Craig, or anyone? Uh, what is anti-production? Can we define that? And let's take the last few minutes to really talk through what anti-production is without using the term production. Oh, how do we do that? That's um, a nice curb. I, 
Can I use an example, or do you want to? Does it use the word production? No, it won't. No. I promise I won't use the word production. All right, um, go for it. Oh, no. I just think about the expansion of markets, for example. And here in the 21st century, we've covered just about every frontier of, of market on, on the face of the earth. I, we've populated uh, every continent. We've explored every corner of the earth. We've created a virtual market as well and virtual commodities. At some point, in order to grow even more, we have to destroy some things. And so one of the ways we can do that is through a war. And if we wage war on a locality, let's pick a place. Um, just We'll pick one at random, Iraq. We go in, invade them under false pretenses, uh, destroy the infrastructure, and then we bring in uh, capital entities, forces and agents of capitals, uh, company like Halliburton, company like Parsons, to rebuild that area to basically create a freak market for capitalism and also create a market for um, uh, private militaries and so forth. And so war is a force of anti-production. Anywhere where there's a, a kind of tension that exists, uh, an exploitable tension, one in which, well, if, if we maybe can't win the war, maybe we can sustain the war long enough so as to create a small localized mechanism of the production of cat. Oh, I use the word production. Game over. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's going to be a challenge. Let me, let me try. Uh, uh, and it, I, I don't think it's possible to do this without saying production, but we will give it a shot uh, because it's, I'm just trying to make sure we get enough people. There's a few people that have uh, a few issues. Um, for me, the way I see anti-production is it is, uh, any type of creation or activity that is unable to be subsumed by the uh, the socius, uh, in our case, capital, uh, and as such is required to be repressed. That repression is the thing that denotes it as anti-production. Mm. Um, yeah. But, but no, I, think, I mean, I, think I, I would just really like to fall back on the example you used once, Brooks, with the creation of video games and this uh, kind of anti-production that goes uh, that goes into everything you do, right, under a pretext of, let's say, capitalist, capitalism, right? Yes. I mean, I, mean well, I just wanted to remember that example because I really liked it. That's I wish I could remember, too. I think it's, uh, it's from... Chapter two, uh, I'll have to go back and re-listen and try to find that example of the entire thing. Well, another, another uh, you know, I mean, I don't think we should avoid the word destruction, right? I mean, it, it, the, you know, anti-production is really destruction. Uh, but, but in order to do the destruction, you have to have a military industrial complex. So there's a lot of, a lot of production that happens in order to create destruction so anti-production is sort of the production of destruction well, that's one way of interpreting it another another example that might of the war metaphor is the repression of the voices of trans people for example um and i think um we have this molar notion of man and woman that's inherent to the functioning of our culture and society at least in western society and trans people threaten that and there was there was a really interesting conversation happening in this uh in the discussion chat 
uh, a few hours ago about the relationship between territoriality, gender, and um, and kind of the binary and where mm. like Deleuze would sit in contemporary uh, gender theory circles and things like that. And it was fascinating. Um, but yeah, I think, I think we, we don't have to be so strict with a definition for anti-production. Like I think everything from, you know, the, the austere asylum to the invasion of Iraq, I think all of these things can be considered anti-production by in, in the deluso guattarian framework. I mean, unless I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe to clarify any sort of ambiguity, like between the Iraq war example and the trans example, in the case of the Iraq war or any any sort of proxy war that's funded by any of the larger countries, um, just consider stagnation under capital. Capital cannot stagnate. Uh, And if it does, well, we need a way to kick it into gear. And so the thing that's being repressed in the anti-production example with war is that that form of stagnation. There's there's a certain kind of flow that capital ultimately won't tolerate if it means that it can't grow. Maybe this flow uh, that really represses growth of capitalism is what's happening with coronavirus. I mean, we talked about it a bit earlier, right? Could I read a yeah, bit from the and the, the thing is, the force of anti-production cannot be so great as to unsettle the entire apparatus of capitalism, and that's why, if it has inbuilt mechanisms, it needs to ease off on them. If some sort of natural form of anti-production comes about, some sort of cataclysm like we're experiencing now, mm-hmm. hmm. it almost makes me uh, hopeful in the Marxian, um, you know, apocalyptic vision of capitalism undermining itself, like it will somehow. somehow you know, lose its own identity and uh, enter into anti-production. Oh, we're back on we're itself. back on that train. You decided. Well, I, I think I think we'll pull the nineties. We have a um, new member. Uh, Park Bench hasn't spoken yet. I think I'm hearing you. Park Bench, are you there? Are you there? Hey, sorry, I didn't realize I was making noise. No, it's okay. I'll go ahead and uh, you probably turn your mic up a little bit. Does everyone yeah, kind of quiet? Super quiet. Super quiet. Sorry, can you can you hear me better? Oh, yes, my... yes, please. Please speak. Brooks, you're <laughs> echoing a bit. Oh, that's not me. Not me. We're all echoing a bit. Oh, it's, it's Park Bench. Park Bench, are you on headphones by chance? And I, I am on headphones. I thought that was better for echoing. Is it not? It's it's a, apparently your apparently headphones not. are very powerful. Very powerful. Okay. <laughs> Should I take them off and try again? No, just uh, go, some... ahead and, go ahead and speak. We'll give you just a moment. Just a moment. Okay. I was just on the headphones. headphones. <laughs> on the anti-production bit, I just thought it was interesting because I've been reading the Holland, and to me, the Holland is actually really, really helping more so than the Buchanan, in terms of really getting to the the nuts and bolts of what some of these terms are. So, I think it's funny because sometimes when we're talking about these terms, it helps to go from micro to macro kind of angles to try and understand them. And with the anti-production, I actually find it more helpful to go to the kind of more granular, primordial end of things because you can get into kind of like complicated arguments about, okay, the, you know, the Iraq war and what represents the macro forces of anti-production. Whereas there's a part where in on page 32 of the Holland, he talks about just the, the disjunctive energy of anti-production being the thing that produces the body without organs in the first place. And he compares it to even, you know, the, the, the situation of like the, I think someone brought up the mouth and the breast 
uh, thing of like the the moment of desiring machines eventually having to break off and cease their working and breaking down and moving on to the next thing that there is not necessarily and if i'm understanding it right the anti-production isn't always necessarily a directly opposing force that's coming from this other direction but kind of an inherent component to the the process of desiring production that is part of its breaking down and when it talked about it forming the body without organs through all these broken connections i sort of ended up thinking and i wrote this in the chat about the example of like a human nail uh with all of the the because I was trying to think about how does that end up creating the recording surface of the body without organs. But the, in the Holland, he talks about, you know, through the process of all these connect, broken connections being linked together, it ends up creating this other thing. And I thought, yeah, the, I thought the human nail was an interesting example of all the dead cells piling up and creating a, a, a surface that, you know, wouldn't exist without all of those miniature desiring machines having ended um, through some kind of act of anti-production. That's actually a really good metaphor. I like that a lot. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's good. All right. And I think actually we are going to end it there. So thank yeah. you, Park Bench, for finishing that out. <laughs> uh, uh, it's, a lot, it's a lot we've dealt with today. We are going to be back here again, uh, same time Thursday, uh, to try to get through a little bit more of this section, see where we can go. Um, please take a look around the rest of the server. And uh, volunteer if you can, uh, ask some more questions, get more involved. We really uh, appreciate everyone being a part of this. And uh, we are trying to cater to all of you as much as possible. So with that, I'm going to give uh, thanks to all the admins, Craig, Kent, Doug, uh, uh, Zarathustra, who's now going by his real name, Andrew, everyone across the board. Will, thank you guys very much uh, for helping set this up and keep it going. And I look forward to seeing you guys in a few days. No. Thank you. See you then. See you. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>